0: Good afternoon and welcome to Deering Live on this wonderful Thursday, it's not Thursday, it's Wednesday. Afternoon Wednesday. Hey, I'm yeah. sorry, oh, Dave. I think just like you, I'm a little bit jet lagged, and so I'm not quite, uh, not quite with the world yet, but we've both been traveling. Not together, but we have been yeah. traveling, have we not? We have. Yes, we have. I just have. landed in, uh, yeah, in South America today. So. Nice. I just landed back in uh, San Diego, coming from my home country. After a nice visit to the U.S. Embassy, that was a fun time. <laughs> another that's, a, story. that's a whole different story. <laughs> but it was good, it was good. All right, so before we get in today, this is going to be a fun episode. Um, and, uh, and I imagine a very interesting uh, episode as well. I can't wait to get into it. Uh, but before we do, uh, real quick, if you are in the U.S. Um, and you are looking to pick up a banjo this time of year, maybe for yourself or for your loved one uh, for Christmas or for the holiday season, um, our Good Time Good Time 2 banjos are currently still available as part of our Black Friday uh, extended sale. Uh, you can pick up the Good Time open back for 499 and the Good Time 2 for 719 from participating dealers in the U.S. through Sunday. So do take advantage of that. Um, pretty, pretty good deal, I think. And most I'd U.S. Guess. dealers are taking part in that. So Dave, happy with that? Yeah, uh, you know, price busters. Christbusters. That's right. Good made in America quality. That's what we like. All right. So our guest today is an award-winning musician and a scholar. He's a recipient of the very prestigious Steve Martin Banjo Prize, which uh, if you missed it, we hosted a couple of weeks ago. Um, but uh, I believe Jake won just a, a number of years ago now. Um, and he's a two-time winner of the Appalachian String Band Music Festival, otherwise known as Clifftop. He's a specialist in the early folk music of Black Americans, and his latest record, *The New Faith*, was released on September twenty-third of this year as part of the Smithsonian Folkways Recording African American Legacy series. Uh, There's someone we know quite well called Rhiannon Giddens, and she put out a quote on uh, on our guest today that says, "On top of being wildly intelligent and knowledgeable, he's also a killer musician, and that's an incredible combo." And having kind of hung with him just for 20 minutes or so before the show and we watched him play. He plays magnificently, sounds fantastic. Uh, so I think there's probably only one way to get on with the show and that's to welcome our guest, Mr. Jake Blunt. Bring him in. Here he is. Hey, Jake.
1: Hey. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. And where are you in the world today?
1: I am in Providence, Rhode Island, home at last. <laughs> and that, that,
0: that's where you're from, right?
1: I'm originally from Washington, D.C., but I live uh-huh. in Providence these days.
0: Very cool. Very it's cool. A nice place I've there. N- I've never been.
2: Never
1: I've been. to visit. I, r- I, I recommend it on.
2: in the summertime.
1: Yes, <laughs> definitely <laughs> yeah. a good a good <laughs> seasonal destination.
2: <laughs> Come to Newport. Yeah, the oh, Newport course, Folk yeah. Fest. That's right up right up. You know, it's very close by.
0: That's very close by. How do you play there? I think you have, right? I read. I have twice. Yeah. Yeah. How was that experience? Being kind of in the, in your, your home area.
1: I mean, it was really cool to play. I've been hearing about Newport for years. You know, that's 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 a that was a goal for me. Um, So certainly a little bit geeked out and nervous and excited every time I get to do something with those folks. They're awesome and they treat you really well.
0: Yeah, Dave, you went a couple times, right? um... Yeah, we've we've
2: been there a couple times with you know with Deering, and uh, yeah, it's it's a fantastic festival. You know, the whole thing, the location, the the you know the artists, the the
0: it's done very well. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, we've got lots of things to talk about. Before we do, uh, you want to kick things off with a little tune? And uh, as, is, as is tradition for Daring Live, what are you going to play for us?
1: I'm going to play a tune called Pretty Little Shoes that I think originally came from a guy named Ward Jarvis. Um, but I learned it from a recording of a dear friend and teacher of mine named Judy Hyman from Ithaca, New York And then played it for her years later and she went, I don't know that tune So <laughs> um, take, take that as you will it's, it, I've done my thing to it I Love it
2: that was beautiful that was really really nice thank you yeah um what's kind of struck me there is you know the, the, the tune's a, a simple little short you know melody that kind of goes around but it's just really um hypnotic almost and 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 the way you're playing it you know it's just really uh you have a lot of sensitivity and, and you're using dynamics and it, it feels musical where you know how did you get that into your playing? Because a lot of times banjo players have a tendency to be a little heavy-handed or <laughs> go too fast or too you know.
1: Not that I am immune to those tendencies, <laughs> but um, I think uh, I, I have spent most of my banjo career playing in banjo fiddle duo settings, um, and I've noticed over the past like year and a half when I've been touring with the whole string band a lot of the time that... Touring with the whole band forces you to be really heavy-handed, and I think the same could be said for playing often in jams that include all of the instruments as opposed to just a few. Um, When I'm playing with especially a guitar player, if I'm not careful, the banjo just gets swallowed by the guitar, Mm. and I have to hit it really hard. And then every time I come home, there's this process of, like, relearning where i think my banjo actually sounds the best of really right. paying close attention to the resonances and to the way it sounds and even you know when i have a microphone like this a little ways away really thinking about what part of the string i'm playing on that kind of thing um yeah. it's just taken playing in a lot of different settings i think and paying attention to how the really skillful fiddlers I've had the pleasure of playing with have uh, put their own dynamics and their own sort of rhythmic interpretation onto the tune and finding that going into my own playing, kind of whether I invite it there or not.
2: Yeah. Did you play fiddle before you played banjo? Or, no, or... I
1: actually, i I played electric guitar first, but I was terrible right. at it. Um, and then I picked up banjo. That was my first like folk instrument.
2: Okay. Yeah, I think that I could see how the, you know, playing the fiddle, you know, especially if they're fiddle tunes, uh, um, really can get you into the song a little bit deeper on a certain way, especially because the fiddle has, you know, you can play long tones and and you can try to, I guess, learn to emulate that by, by letting the banjo ring a little bit more rather than
1: absolutely i don't i don't think i would sound i think both of them together other within yeah. me uh, i don't yeah. think that my fiddle playing would sound like it does if i wasn't a banjo player first mm-hmm. and i don't think that my banjo playing would sound like it does if i wasn't also a fiddle player
2: yeah have you been able to bring you know you know i i i to, i totally agree i, I that that Banjo players can get heavy-handed because they're often playing in jams. They come up learning playing in jams, or you're the playing in full, you know, and they're, so, they're just trying to get heard, and you really p- pound it out. But have you been able to work with, like, your stage setup to be able to play with a light touch with the full band, um, where you can, you know, make the banjo sound the best, like, where you think it sounds good, and then get it just amplified, you know, when you're playing...
1: Yeah, I think I what I lo- have learned, even just in recent months, um, is that I need to not be afraid to use the monitor with the banjo. Mm-hmm. Um, where my usual impulse is that I need my voice back at me from the monitor, but otherwise, instrument-wise, I'm used to being able to hear what I need. But because of the way banjos are built, as you know, they project the sound forward, I and mean. you don't necessarily get a whole lot if you're standing up. And for me, that's like a couple feet between my head and the instrument. So um, I have had to just be bold with that. But I just think where where I'm landing as a player these days is that my banjo and my banjo playing don't shine their best in a band setting. Um, And I'm doing uh, a few projects in the spring that are going to be smaller ensembles and more intimate. And I'm really excited for that because I think it it actually has been hard to stay in touch with the banjo with so much other sound going on. Uh, And, you know, the richness of the tone there can get swallowed really easily in a big band situation.
2: Right. Yeah. I think being an acoustic musician, I I know myself um, being being a little bit afraid of using the monitor. Cause you like to hear the acoustic sound and it's a different attack when you hear, you know, coming through a speaker. Um, but, but I think that that does would allow you to play with that light touch, you know?
3: Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, um, well, your new record, um, that's I want to talk about that. The new faith that, that I, it's a fantastic, um, recording and it's the whole idea is of it is is really cool. It's for everybody. I'll try to. I'm going to try to explain it, and then you can kind of correct me where I where I screw up. <laughs> but for those, it's it's um, so it's it's a fiction. It's this it's songs. You know, it's tunes. But it's a fictional. It's based upon a fictional story about in a post kind of apocalyptic climate crisis world where there's um, where there's refugees, black refugees go um find an island off the coast of Maine and and then and then they start a, a religious ceremony playing these old string band tunes, but in a modern with modern aesthetics coming in. But that kind of outlines it and then you why don't you fill in the gaps how I missed. <laughs> yeah, I mean
1: the the way I always explain it the elevator pitch is that it's an Afrofuturist record depicting what black folk music might sound like in the era after climate change um so when all of the increasingly terrifying cycles of ecological damage that we are witnessing and perpetuating today uh spiral fully out of our control society changes people are living in very different ways they have to migrate to find food arable land clean water etc um The idea was that some of these traditions would probably survive, but also that the people of the future would have heard everything that we have heard today and that that would in some way still come through in the music that they were making and the project there was to kind of envision how culture and music might progress even as technology regresses right these people in my mm-hmm. head don't have access to like digital processing right, and they right. don't even have consistent electricity so it became what does like hip-hop inflected music sound like or what do those production techniques sound like when applied to acoustic instruments right, yeah. um, which was a fun challenge
2: yeah it's it's I mean, you could definitely see a, a, a like a, a book coming out of this whole sort of idea. It's, it's, it's a really cool, um, it's a really cool idea. And um, I do have one question: Why are they only? Why is it only string band music? Because there are, you know, there's a number of string band music mixed with, with like hip hop. Um, well, you know.
1: yeah, I mean, I I would consider the new record to be actually mostly spirituals. Um, Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. right. And that the string band stuff is the instrumentation that I use because it's the instrumentation that I'm good at. Um, So, you know, I threw some electric guitar on there. I got a good blues guitarist to sit in for a song like there's there's other stuff going on. But, you know, my main tools are the banjo and the fiddle. So those wound up being the bedrock of the sound. Um, And I think. In future iterations, that might be different, but it also might not. Uh, it, one of the fun things about that project was getting to really twist the timetable there and be working with, you know, the, this banjo tune from 1687 um, and have it, uh, you know, sit really nicely with rap over it, even though those things didn't coexist Prior to now, um the way that those things can can fit together is really exciting to me, so I always like to see what I can mash together of of my culture's leavings from across time
2: yeah it really it, it really works well it, it's you know you know sometimes fusion sort of things like this can kind of go awry really it, it works and I love I brought this up with a lot of because we have a lot of traditional musicians on here. I, you know, and, um, about pushing traditional music forward. And, and, and I love how you, you know, you, you've said this, you know, it's, I think it's a field recording from the future. Um, and, uh, um, you, you know, how do you feel about trying to, you know, what, what, about trying to push, you know, keep pushing, not just trying to reenact, you know, you know, an old recording and just playing a bunch of string band tunes, note for note of, like, note recording. How do you feel, you know, what's your take on that sort of thing when playing traditional music?
1: Yeah, I mean, having done both things to an extent, I mean, I think um, I you wind up in this weird situation with a lot of the traditional folk crowd where, like, Spider Tales, my first album, is for 99% of the world an extremely archaic trad album. Okay. And for people within the trad bubble it feels very progressive in a lot of ways and some parts of it definitely are but you know there there are some crusty old time tunes on that record yeah. um i find meaning in doing both things kind of i think the reason why I didn't wind up making another old time record was one because Folkways approached me about this one, like a couple months after spider tales had come out. And I was like, I don't have the repertoire built up yet. Like it took me three years to put together the songs that went on spider tales. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that I couldn't do it faster if I had focus and time, but I didn't have time. Um And because it was the pandemic, I couldn't actually get a band together. I couldn't, rely on being able to record with other people. So it felt like how am I going to make a record of community music when I can't be in community with people? That doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like what the moment is calling for. So I sat down and kind of thought, what can I do with only my hands or maybe like a couple other people who I can work with remotely um, that will speak to where we are right now? And also I think to deliberately move a little bit farther from the traditional stuff than I had because um I think when Spider Tales came out, people definitely stuck me in this box of like black string band music historian. And I certainly have read a lot about it and I'm happy to share it, but I'm also right. like not a trained historian. Like there are people right. who have dedicated whole careers to that. And I do have my scholarly focus, but it's in a different place. So, mm-hmm. um, for me, this felt like a more, okay, I need to bring more of myself to the table because I don't feel like people really got it last time. Um, yeah. And I think maybe that's like the the process across many albums of being a professional musician, that you're kind of trying to slowly guide people to understanding who you are and what you can do.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I can feel that. Um, yeah, and you kind of answered some of this. I was curious about the recording process because this was a... Uh, a, a pandemic uh, era, uh, you know, record that you made. Did you do that in a lot of it in the home studio? Or did you go to Because a, Because a lot of it is, is you, you know, playing different instruments as well? Right? Yes.
1: Yeah, I did almost all of it at home. I had one day in a studio as part of the process where I did some of the vocal tracks for some of the more like stripped down and sensitive pieces. Um, but for the most part, uh, a lot of it actually was in this room, although I have actually, like, built this part of the studio situation over, like, the past week. Um, it was not this well set up when I when I made the record in here. But, um, yeah, I'd, I had never done anything like that before. I'd never really been that into, like, the software, the gear, whatever that mm-hmm. you need to do that kind of thing. And um, I don't think I'm ever going to go back to making an entire album in the studio. Um, There are some things that I can't do that well in here because they rely on the room being good. Like, I don't think I would optionally record like a fiddle piece in here because the Mm -hmm. ceiling is low and the fiddle doesn't sound that good. But um, certainly there are many things that I'm happy to do at home now, and I don't know that I'm ever going to change that.
2: It really gives you the the relaxation to work on things how you want it? Not on a time crunch show that's going to cost me X Y right, so much money.
1: Exactly. I mean, I for some of these songs, especially like the ones with guitar solos and stuff, I was so mean to myself about the guitar solos, <laughs> um, both on the New Faith and on the Man Was Burning, which was released before but actually recorded after. Um, and you know that comes from many years of being a bad guitar player, and therefore you know being, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right. um but i got i mean i must have recorded that solo like 50 times maybe even more and just done it in like many you know just tried out a ton of different approaches tried to nail them down as best i could um especially when it comes to playing the fiddle on records there's so much trouble to be found in trying to like discern what microphone to use to record a fiddle and where to put it and all of those things and I think in a studio you have the benefit of a professional engineer who will make more educated choices but you also kind of have to trust them to have the same sound goal that right. you do um, or the knowledge to know how to get it and a lot of guys you know that you go in and work in a regular studio, they don't record banjos and stuff. Um, you know, I'm sure, you know, banjo players among you in the audience who've recorded albums before will know the struggle of like going into the studio and having the engineer like slap a compressor on the banjo and it just kills your tone right away. And they don't know better. They're used to putting a compressor on everything. So it's a it's a really nice thing to have the control to be really tweaky about it to learn what I like, because after making that album, you know, I turned out a single in two days, basically did a rough mix myself and then finished it with an engineer in one day. Um, yeah. And I never could have done that before. I think going through all the steps makes you so much more informed about the choices that you have um, and how to get the sounds that you want. I, I think. I was talking to my guitarist on the last tour and I said, microphones are also instruments and I think music would sound so much better if more musicians learned how to play them.
2: How'd you also get out of the, cause there's the rabbit hole of when you're alone and you have infinite amount of time and takes where you end up making like that guitar solo. You get, I bet there's takes, there's multiple takes that, uh, you know, a non-musician friend would come and be like, they sound the same. Um Where you're not, where you're, oh, you know, but you hear it, you know, but um we aren't just like spinning your wheels, though. You aren't just kind of almost going crazy about things that aren't really that important. How to like cut it and be like, all right, let's go. Like, this is it.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, like you can get limitlessly detailed when there's yeah. no one else holding you accountable. So that's definitely an easy trap to fall into. And I definitely did it a lot of times. What I would say is recording yourself that much makes you deeply aware of the shortcomings in your own musicianship. And I think that's why a lot of musicians hate recording themselves, um, because it makes you laser focused on all the things that you're doing wrong. And... I think I feel that a lot of times, but I also have come to embrace recordings as this is a snapshot of where I am right now. And I need to make this as good as I possibly can with the skills and the equipment at my disposal right now. And there will come a day for me to do a better job and it's going to have to be on another day. Um, Some of it did just involve a huge amount of time. Like I spent a lot of time working on that record for sure. Um, and that meant there, like the first song that we started was The Downward Road, and that was the last song that we finished, because I like wasn't getting the vocals quite where I want them. Mm-hmm. I'm still not totally satisfied with how they came out in the end. There are things that are happening there that I don't like, but I accept those as like my limitations right now. I'm gonna practice a ton, so when I go and record the next album, I can sing that right. When I go out on the stage and play it, I can sing it right. I think it can all... Be productive rather than, you know, uh, a feedback loop in your own head if you try to keep a good mindset about it.
2: Yeah, that's definitely a good way to to look at it, you know, as a snapshot of time.
1: and
3: Yeah.
2: And uh, and don't beat yourself up just because well, I'll do a better job, you know, next time. Exactly. Um, you mentioned the downward road. um are there two banjo tracks on that record? There's there's a steel string banjo and then a and then a nylon string banjo.
1: I think so. I that's, yeah. <laughs> I you, definitely you have, recorded both.
2: <laughs> okay. You have but there's like a constant r- r- rhythmic banjo where you're strumming kind of up mm. and down there.
1: The banjo right? ukulele.
3: Yes. Okay,
2: that's what was the banjo uke. Okay. Mhm. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's a good sound. It, it gives it a, you know, a definite, a nice groove and uh and then and mixing it in that uh the older sound banjo. Was it a nylon string or was it just a different um thing?
1: so yeah, I have it's in here somewhere, but I don't have it out right yeah. now. Yeah. I have a, a fretless nylon string banjo from Renan banjos. Um that's like a twelve inch Dobson pot. So it has a tone ring in it, um right. and a shallower pot than like, you know, it's not a minstrel banjo, but it kind of does some of the same stuff. Um yeah, I really I think it sounds pretty good on that on that cut. Um I ideally I think would have used a gourd banjo for that because of what the the piece is, right? The banjo part from that is is cribbed from this sixteen eighty seven banjo tune called Angola that yeah. um Hans Sloan with a guy named Mr. Baptiste collected from enslaved Africans in Jamaica way back then. So uh I think had i owned a gourd banjo um which i hope to get one soon um had i owned a gourd banjo i would have used that but it was the best thing that i had at the time and i really i like the way that banjo sounds i think it i think it did a really good job there
2: it's it's, it's it yeah it sounds good and it's, it's it's um it's cool how you took that that banjo piece from from that um there's a written is written out notation because it's not you know an old recording back then mm-hmm. it's written out by by this Hans Sloan, and who else was involved so, in that
1: Hans Sloan is the guy who published it it's in his like book of memoirs but I was re- I don't know if y'all have y'all read Well of Souls yet Christina Garcia's new book no. It's like it's I mean it's like the banjo book that's been needed oh, wow. to be written it's incredible um and she dug very deeply into that so I guess Hans Sloan saw the music taking place, wanted to write it down, but like wasn't good enough at transcribing music to accurately take down what was happening. And there was an enslaved African musician there named Mr. Baptiste who was. So okay. Mr. Baptiste actually transcribed the sheet music and then Hans Sloan published it under his own name, of course, but he oh, mentions yeah. Mr Baptiste in the in the narrative surrounding it.
2: How many how many tunes are in that publication?
1: I think there are only three. Um, There's Angola, Papa and Coromanti. And Coromanti is kind of three different pieces of music. It's kind of hard to imagine them fitting together into one. So I, I feel that there are probably five, but they're listed as three.
2: And how did you find out about this publication? And where did you where did you, you know, get access to it?
1: I first heard about it from Greg Adams, who is an incredible banjo player and historian who works at the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage, one of the contributors to Banjo Roots and Branches, if anyone has read that book. Um, he knows everything about the banjo. I mean, he and Christina <laughs> are are the codex, like it's, it's crazy. Um, and we taught an early banjo class together at Midwest banjo camp years ago. And he just like pulled up this website and I was like, what is this? This is wild. Um, and he taught us a section of a different tune from it. Um, that has a little bit more melody going on. I'm always really drawn. Um, the simple epic sounding thing and that's what angola is so i use that actually all over the album i used it as kind of a motif that resurfaces Mm -hmm. as the thing goes on
2: another thing that was cool that i found out from watching you know another video about about this album was the the um that rhythm on once there was no sun from the ring shout tradition yes and i i hadn't known about that but but it was interesting because the the rhythm is the same clave that's in I'm I from New Orleans and it's the same oh, yeah. as, as New Orleans street beat which comes from the Mardi Gras Indians which comes from which you know comes from Caribbean music and mm-hmm. uh, um but it's very interesting to see it's the exact same you know thing Oh totally um,
1: yeah you see that that rhythm happening like everywhere Caribbean Onto the borders here, yeah. um, and it didn't make it inland. Maybe because drums were illegal for Black people to own in the in the United States early on, um, but it yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a strong kinship there.
2: Can you can you sh- demonstrate what this rhythm is for everybody, just so they can. Mm-hmm.
1: So, for, for people who are not familiar, the Ring Shout is this Gullah Geechee musical tradition. The Gullah Geechee are uh, a people that live on, or will originate in, they have since spread, um, from the Sea Islands in South Carolina and Georgia. They're de- the descendants of African people who were brought there to work on rice plantations because there were expert rice farmers amongst the Africans being sold out this way. Um, and because their population on those islands was proportionately far more black than it was on the mainland. Um, there, there were many more black people for each white person who was there. Some of the really restrictive laws about music and dance and stuff did not get as strictly enforced um, because you could only push them so far before you had to worry about an uprising. So, um, whereas the uh, mainland approach, I would say, uh, was maybe a little bit more stayed in the, in the religious ceremony. And percussion, as I said, was not permitted because it was believed that it could be used as a signal device in a slave uprising, which at times it was, that was a, a well-founded fear. Um, but the solution to slave uprisings is to free your slaves, but you know, whatever. Um, it... The Gullah Geechee people retained a lot of things from Africa um, that the rest of us lost. And some of that comes through in the song, some of it comes through in the dance. The ring shout is this thing that is really interesting because most of us would describe it as a dance, but culturally it is very specifically not a dance. Um, And uh, basically what happens is there's this rhythm that we've been talking about that will come from uh, people clapping, so there's, there's always people doing You know, some combination of things. One of the things that I love about those recordings is that there are a ton of different clap rhythms that all work together. Um, and I did that all over this album, like different like stereo clap tracks that interact with each other. That's it's so cool. Um, and then there will be a guy with a broomstick banging on the floor bop, 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 or bop, 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 bop. So there's a really strong rhythmic thing that's happening and people kind of shuffle in a circle, and I can't demonstrate because I won't fit all in the frame. Uh, <laughs> this is a small studio space. Um, but the the idea at the time was that if you don't lift your feet off the floor and you don't cross your feet, it isn't dancing. So it's this uh, non-dance where you kind of shuffle your feet like this and go around in a ring. And... Um, That's what the Ring Shout is. So there are a a number of wonderful songs that go along with that tradition, uh, several of which I used on this record, and one of which I actually used on Spider-Tales, so.
2: Well, would you like to play another tune? What kind of, uh, in the midway pointage? Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. play a version of Roust About" from Dink Roberts of Haw River, North Carolina.
2: From what tuning are you going
1: to? Uh, I'm just doing standard G right now. Banja's been through some pretty drastic weather changes in the past few days. So it's. The goat skin is is feeling disagreeable today.
2: played that on your your album spider tales right yes yeah where did you learn that that tune uh
1: i learned it from a recording of dink roberts who's from a black banjo player from haw river north carolina actually black and native i recently learned uh from my friend justin robinson uh who as y'all may know is a banjo player and fiddle player one of the original three carolina chocolate drops and um he knows a lot more about the life stories of people from that part of the world than I do, and apparently Dink was Okanichi, so uh, okay. black Indian, uh, as as we say, and uh, really wonderful banjo player and apparently slide guitarist as well. Although I don't think there are any recordings of that, but people talk about it.
2: And what what t- what time was this? recorded what there what year
1: oh he was recorded in the 70s or something um okay I, I mean there were a few sets of recordings made i think the earliest is in the 70s but there's video of him you can go online and watch him play um and very very weird style but very cool
2: yeah is there something is there kind of any general when you hear older Recordings of black string bands versus versus a white string band of the same era, and and is there is there kind of and the same region because it moves by region too, Um, is there kind of is there a difference in feel or or is there is there is there kind of an overarching difference that you can put the words?
1: Well, yes and no. So I think you you cottoned on to the really important part that people often forget or don't talk about, which is that the regional variations are much stronger um, than any other types of variations. And, of course, time. Time and place. Um, so, you know, if you put Joe and Odell Thompson from in North Carolina, up against Tommy Jarrell, they're going to sound a lot more alike than... Joe and Odell Thompson versus like Cooge Bertram, who is from Fentress County, Tennessee. That's like a totally different style of music. So certainly the regional thing is is more more meaningful to me, to my ear. Yeah. Um, I think there was probably an overarching difference, and this is where we run into an issue with the the folkloric record as it has been passed down to us, that we know from oral history um and from work that was done by black folklorists back in the day that there was a whole separate body of tunes that these black string bands did not play for white audiences um and i think that will probably be more for the old folks than for people like joe and odell thompson who of course were also old folks but less old Mm -hmm. um you know, we know that like Murph Gribble, John Leskin, Albert York had other tunes that they did not play for white audiences and we don't know what they were. Um, there are more recordings than we knew. There's a great website. I think it's just called like GribbleLeskinYork.net or something um, that has a lot of recordings from them. But this is part of the the trouble that we wind up with is that most of the folklorists were white. So a lot of that music, never really got recorded. Um, right. And we know that even folks who didn't talk about having a whole separate repertoire, like Joe and Odell Thompson, for example, they didn't talk about having separate tunes, but they absolutely played them differently. And they talked about that. And I've talked to Justin about it, who saw it you know, happen in the house and saw it happen very differently than it did in other places. Um, so there were differences, but I don't know that because of the time and the place that I'm from, I'm super well qualified to tell you what they were
2: yeah yeah it's yeah it's sad you lose you know you you know you lose a part of a of a tra- of a you know tradition that on a certain portion of it absolutely um we do have a question from from bluesbone double o seven um saying could Jake share differences between early black banjo players and then later clawhammer or similar styles
1: yeah um so I think there's a lot of things you could mean by early, so I'll <laughs> engage with that caveat. Um, what I would say is that there's less of a difference than you might think, um, and that a lot of the inventions that we hear about Clawhammer players doing um, in in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, are actually things that you can hear being done on older recordings from, like, the 40s and 50s. Um, in particular, I think about, like, Richie Stearns or um, John Herman as clawhammer banjo players who have this, like, really deep, groovy, drop-thumb style going on where they're starting phrases with the thumbs sometimes. It's really syncopated. Um, and... I think most people are under the impression that that's, like, a 60s, 70s hippie invention. But if you go listen to, like, Nathan Fraser and Frank Patterson on recordings that were made in 1942, they're... Like, Nathan Fraser is playing that same stuff. He's using his thumb the same way. Dink Roberts used his thumb to start phrases on the tune I just played for you. Um, so there's a strong lineage there. I also contend that there's a really strong lineage with bluegrass. And I don't mean to... Weighed into the creation myth of bluegrass because that's a whole other topic, but um, I mean you listen to Murph Gribble, John Lesk, and Albert York and it's a Three-finger banjo player playing roles that are like sometimes the same as the Scruggs roles You have a fiddle player who's trading off the melody with the other instruments like it is an right. early bluegrass band Like, and it clearly is playing a thing that was fully formed well before Bill Monroe and his bluegrass boys showed up on the scene. So, um, I think that there's less of a difference than we often are told that there is. Um, and that the more we listened to, we listen to broad examples of, of black banjo playing and, uh, black fiddle playing, the more we will realize that there is precedent for a lot of the stuff we're doing today and that many of those things, like the stuff that like Richie Stearns and John Herman were doing, the super syncopated drop thumbing and stuff that came in by way of like rock and roll and reggae was a thing that had found its way out of the tradition into rock and roll and reggae and then crossed back in over time. Um, there's this funny thing that you can see happening where um, some of the black performance practices or aesthetics, were ironed out of the genre as it became commercialized. And then as white musicians became influenced by other black genres, they reemerge on their own. Um, yeah. And I find that really interesting, like there's a whole thing to be written about how that happened. But um, yeah, that I would say that they're less different than you might think.
2: Right. What were some of your who were some of your teachers? You I mean, you learned from I read Bruce Molesky some, and and you also kind of, you, you know, there, there's an Ithaca sound, you kind of do that as well, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I didn't ever have consistent teachers on the banjo. Um, I think fiddle requires a little bit more organized
2: instruction,
1: <laughs> so um, I didn't have, like, one person that I why, went why to. Why would you for... say that?
2: Why would think... you think so?
1: Because it's a lot less intuitive how to make noise with the fiddle. Like right. a banjo, you sit down. I had like three lessons at the beginning from the professor who became my undergraduate advisor, Dr. Lydia Hammersley, um, on my dear in good time, and um, she taught me the basic like claw hammer motions, etc. And then I went and watched a ton of YouTube videos and was kind of off to the races. And I took, I think, like a handful of banjo workshops at camps and stuff that I think maybe opened some new doors. But for the most part, I feel like those early lessons set me up and then it was just about listening really deeply. I think there are a lot of people who I would consider to be teachers who I've never spoken to in my life or never taken a lesson from just because, for years, I went around with a big pair of headphones on, like this, listening to old-time music all the time, and paying really close attention to what everybody was doing. And I think, in some ways, that was more impactful than the few lessons that I had. I did take one workshop with Richie Stearns back in the day, who was a banjo player from Ithaca, played in the Horseflies, um, where he taught me a lot of the drop-thumbing stuff that I was just talking about. Um, so that that happened. That is an important part of the story, but I also don't think that I wound up sounding like him. Um, right. So it's a, it's, a, it's a, I don't know. It's been a, a journey in my own head a lot of the way.
2: Richie Stearns didn't play in the Red Hots, did he?
1: Yeah, he did, I think.
2: Okay, because that's funny, because right, so, when I was listening to... Wait, um, I no, thought, there,
1: is that O'Reilly Boggess' guitar in the right. Red
2: Hots? Okay, but there's something, there's a, there's in, what tune is it? There's, um, it is, oh, Rocky Road to Dublin. Hmm. There, there's, there's a groove in there, I was listening to that, and I'm like, is, you know, it's not the same, the, the Red Hots kind of have a, a little bit of, almost a punk rock sort of oh, thing right Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but there's a groove that was just, you know, it's just on the background, and I'm like, this kind of has the same groove, like a groove that Whiteface does on the Red Hots, like yeah. one recording. It's just where it's just, it's just like going. And I don't know why it reminded me, but there is funny that there is... A yeah. Linkage between one of your teachers and, and
1: oh, totally. I mean, I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head whether Richie was actually like the banjo player in that band, but actually, so I did my undergraduate thesis on the Ithaca sound, and what I learned is that back in the day when they like built I 81, there was like this pipeline of musicians from Ithaca down to Lexington, Virginia. Um, And people traveled all along that. So a lot of folks of that age range from, like, the North Carolina and Virginia region hung out a lot with the people who were coming down from Ithaca. There was a lot of trade there. And that's why you wind up with, like, David Winston having been in the correct tones up in Ithaca for an instant. Or, like, Bruce Mulski. People went back and forth a lot and there are still a lot of really tight wonderful friendships between folks who live in like the Round Peak region in western Virginia um, and folks who are up north in Ithaca
2: Yeah, it's such a weird little uh, you just don't expect it the, 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 you know, the up, mid-upstate New York thing connection down from Appalachia Yeah um, and, and what drew you into, what drew you because you mentioned you walked around with you know, headphones with old time music on, like he really dove all the way in. Um, how, how old were you when this clicked for you and you like made the plunge and you just, and what was it like that turned you on?
1: So I started playing old time when I was 18. Um, and what made me want to learn it was actually learning about the history of the banjo i think i did it opposite to most people where i think most people start learning the instrument and then find out about the history but for me it was the other way around so i learned that um you know heard about the banjo being invented by enslaved african-americans and Wanted to kind of get close to something that my ancestors were doing that long ago as black people There aren't very many things we have handed down intact from that time period because you know They weren't allowed to read and write and things like that Um, So any moment you get to interact on that personal of a level can be pretty special so I went with that in mind um, to learn banjo Got my first banjo, had some okay times, and I think over like the next two years, kind of got sucked into the community aspect of old-time music and started to really, you know, I, I knew people early on who were really deep in like the field recording thing, and I live in field recordings now. I love them. I don't listen to them recreationally, and they certainly weren't a very good, like, gateway drug to old-time music. So (laughs) for a long time, I was kind of learning old-time as a way to learn the banjo so that I could do other stuff with the banjo. And then once I started to meet the community of old-time music, really get... In touch with the people who play it um, and go to the festivals and stuff. That's when I was like, "Oh man, this is like where I want to hang out." I like, I'm set.
2: And where were you uh, geographically at this time?
1: I was living in upstate New York. I went to college like two hours east of Ithaca, okay. so I went to school there. Um, traveled to Ithaca all the time. By the end, almost every weekend, I was driving over to Ithaca. Um, it was a it was a really positive thing. Um, to stumble on that in that moment of my life. I really needed it. Um, and in many ways, that that old-time community was kind of the first community I feel I've really been a part of. So it's always special to me. I think will continue to be special to me.
2: Is that community there re- still really strong, that old-time community in, the, in that, that area?
1: Yes. I think the old-time scene... As with all scenes, has been really damaged by the pandemic and I am still interested to see how and if it comes back to where it was where you know we're thankfully back to having most of our festivals and most of our camps and stuff. but people are scared the whole time they're there and uh-huh. you know we I went to Clifftop this year and it was the smallest one that anyone I talked to had ever seen bar maybe like the first couple um it's it's tough um to see those changes and you know we all obviously were hoping that they would be shorter term than they have been um and some level of caution is still needed but uh yeah it is a bummer to to feel those things uh shifting and changing but um I still see people all the time while I'm traveling. You know, I really, I got into touring originally, not because I wanted to be gigging all the time, but because I wanted to go hang out with all my old time friends who I only ever saw at festivals. Um, and it was a way to like pay myself to travel. Um, and I'm really glad that I did it. And I'm glad that I'm still doing it and I still see those people, but things are different. And I, I hope that they come back to to some vision of normalcy, while I'm around to enjoy it.
2: <laughs> well, you've got a lot going on. I'm uh, um, I'm just looking at things from from your website, of things you're involved in. You have you have a duo as well, the the, the Tui band. Is that pronounced right?
1: Yes, Tui. Yes.
2: Just one one mention. You know, explain what that is quickly.
1: Yeah, so it's a duo that I have with a wonderful fiddler and violinist named Libby Whitenauer. Um has been largely put on pause at the moment because I've been doing my solo stuff and Libby's been on tour with the Broadway production of Oklahoma. <laughs> so we've been we've been we've been feeding our other musical pursuits for the past the past year and a half or so. But she's actually flying up here in January, so we can we can start workshopping some new stuff. So things are going well.
2: Cool. And then you're also yeah on a couple. Sort of board members, you're a board member of Bluegrass Pride, and you're also a member, this might have been an annual just a one-year thing a member of ibma's leadership bluegrass class
1: yeah that happens one one year at a time um and i'm emeritus from bluegrass pride at this point um i i have left the board because i was too busy to show up to do anything right. but um they're still doing incredible work and when things quiet down i look forward to re-engaging i love that organization and the people who are who are running things over there
2: and then one other thing you listed you were a Strathmore artist in residence. I'm not familiar with what that is. It, it's,
1: it's um Strathmore is one of the largest performing arts centers institutions around um Washington DC, where I grew okay. up. So it's it's a notable thing regionally. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. But gotcha. um yeah, it was a
2: great learning experience. Um I could keep chatting on more and more, but we're kind of getting at the top of the hour. Um, Is there anything else you want to cover right now? I don't think so. We've covered a lot of ground. What are you working on in the future? Before we, you know, what's what's you know, I know you're pushing this record, but what's the next? Do you have another project? bubbling in your head or anything like that? Oh,
1: totally. I actually, I submitted the the pitch for the next record uh, to, to Smithsonian just recently. So um, fingers crossed that they are excited about it. Um, and I'm going to be just working on some other stuff. Uh, I've been hitting the road real hard lately and uh, have another fun set of shows coming up on like the east coast and in the south um in in the next month or so but um it is a hard time to be a touring musician as uh your twitter feed will tell you if you're on there and you're tuned in everyone's having a really hard time making it work and i am no exception to that so i am uh looking forward to finding some time off the road finding some ways to to continue to make music and uh to be seen uh, without traveling all of the time, although i 'm still right. going to be traveling a lot of the time, so i 'm building out the studio, getting ready to indulge some musical ideas that i 've been having for about a year now and not had time to pursue uh, so I think it 's going to be a productive time coming up.
2: you ever do any production I mean you seems like' cause you seem like you would be a great person to help in you know an artist focus the um you know, a lot of loose ideas. Um, I would
1: love to produce the right person. I think that would be really, really cool. So I have not done it yet, but I remain hopeful that one day someone will ask me. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Right. (laughs) Um, We have a comment from Jamie Philip saying, wow, Jake, you are my hero. I love your music and your knowledge of the music. Thank you for enlightening information about the history of the early recording business.
1: Thanks, Jamie. That's very kind of you.
2: All. Well, I think that's a good spot to kind of <laughs> kind of leave it right there. Um, you know, thanks everybody for for showing up again. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Jake, thanks for thanks for hanging out. Hopefully, we can uh, meet in person sometime. Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> yes. and probably we'll run into each other at a festival or something. sure. Oh yeah, it'll happen. Um, but would you like to play us out with a tune?
1: Happy to. I will play another one from Spider Tales that I've been enjoying reuniting with that repertoire. Um... (laughs) Hyman. it's called beyond this wall uh thanks for having me thanks for watching y'all <laughs>